I think you can be seated <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I know you're not used to seeing me come at this time in the service, so and I'm not really sure exactly what the protocol is either. <laughs> anyway, um, most of you know me. Um, if you don't, I'm Rebecca Engstrom, and my husband is Steve, who's one of the priests that leads the congregation. And I'm, as both um, Jeannie, as the wife of Father Eric, we are part of the leadership team here at Light of Christ. And as part of that leadership, um, sometimes we're called upon to speak to the congregation. So that's why I'm here today in our sermon series, um, delivering the word to you. So to begin with, I want to say that I'm really excited this morning about sharing with you from our series, Engaging with God for Change both in my sermon preparation and in our engaged groups that met for the first time this week, I've been inspired and challenged to think differently about change. Together we explored uh, a metaphor of rowing a boat versus sailing a boat in our experience of spiritual growth. And as we are shifting our conception of the Christian life to an experience that's more like sailing, we are taking note of how the wind does the work of moving the boat. The wind lifts the sail, and it creates movement forward. We let the wind take us to our destination. We surrender to the power and the direction of the wind, and we learn how to align our sails to catch the wind effectively. In order to become a good sailor, or a good Christian, First, we have to learn about the wind and how it works. And then we have to go out on the boat and we have to experience the wind and all of its character. We noted that God is like the wind. He is someone different, someone set apart from us. He moves and he blows. We can't see him, but we can hear him. We can feel him and we can see the results of his presence among us. But there's one aspect in which the metaphor breaks down. The wind is impersonal by nature. It isn't interested or even capable of taking us into account, is it? It doesn't know us. It's just doing its thing. In contrast, the good news about God is that he is not impersonal. He is not an it. He is a living, feeling, passionate, purposeful God. It is his very character, his very being, his identity, his nature to seek relationship with his creation, with us. He relates. God relates. He wants us to be close to him. He wants to be close to us, to develop a relationship with us, sort of to use the popular language, I think he's into me. <laughs> I think he's into you. He's seeking us out. He gets closer. He pursues a relationship with us. Like the wind, he is the energy of movement, life, dynamic, direction, oof, going somewhere. He's often unpredictable. We respect the wind and its power, don't we? So do we respect God. He is full of awe. But unlike the wind, God is not an impersonal force. Behind every movement, every direction, every blowing of his breath, he has one purpose. 
and that is to draw close to us, to be in relationship with us, and to develop and change us into the person he created us to be, a person who reflects his image, to be like him in our character. God is a good God, a personal God, a loving God, enduring, passionately committed God. He does everything for our good, our development. So we want to learn about him. We want to learn more about what he is like, how he works, not just in our head in a classroom setting where we can just give the answers back, but we want to have an experience with this God. We want to get out on the boat with him and sail. So this morning, we're going to spend some time reflecting on the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus, which was our gospel reading for today. And then if we have time, we're going to compare that story to the promises of God that were in the scripture reading from the prophet Jeremiah. I want us to learn more about this very personal God. What does it look like when God relates to us? What happens when he relates to us and we perceive it? So turn to Luke 19 in your Bible or get out your bulletin and look up the, get into the gospel story here. I want you to be looking at it at the same time that I'm kind of doing a reflection through it. I want you to come with me and let's really try to get into the story. How many of you know the story of Zacchaeus? Okay, we have a fair amount. Did any of you grow up with the Sunday school story? With the pictures, the cute little guy in the tree? Does anybody know, you know, that, um, <laughs> that uh, song? I don't know, it shows my age, but what we used to sing when I was a kid, you know, it was like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to your house for tea, for I'm going to your house for tea. That's because I spent a lot of time with British people, and that's how they sing it. <laughs> Instead of today, they say going to your house for tea. Very cute, right? Humorous. We love little Zacchaeus. It's a great kid's story. But wait a minute. What do we actually know from Luke about Zacchaeus? What do we know from a little historical background in Israel at that time, the Romans, tax collectors? We see that Zacchaeus is a short man. He's energetic. After all, he was physically fit enough to run ahead of the crowd and climb into a tree. He seems a curious person. He wanted to see this man that was causing a commotion in Jericho. He seems perhaps impulsive, maybe a bit wily. The story tells us outright that he was rich and that he was a chief tax collector. What does that mean? So here's a little bit of a history lesson. Israel at that time was occupied by the Romans. The Romans had a large tax system in place to send tribute back to the government in Rome, and there was a customs tax that was levied on the value of goods that moved from city to city. So you can picture, there was like a system of tolls, and there were like these, 
tax offices near the city gates, and anybody that was moving by with goods had to pass through there, and their goods were taxed. They had to pay a price to these tax collectors. Um, at that time, the rate was between 2 and 5% of the value of the goods that you had. But it didn't happen once. It could happen multiple times on the road, and depending on what city you were going through, what port town you were in, this was exacting quite a bit from someone who wanted to travel with any kinds of goods. So the way the Romans did this is they would solicit rich Jewish people in that region to act as what's called tax farmers. A tax farmer would oversee many collectors in a given region, and we know that this is what Zacchaeus was. He was a chief tax collector, which the proper term we understand as a tax farmer, and I'll explain why it has that name to it. This is where the Roman system and the tax-collecting profession became oppressive and ugly. The Romans would ask for their tax money in advance, appointing Jewish tax farmers who gave Rome the highest bid. For example, if a chief tax farmer offered to pay Rome one million shekels per year, another might bid, I can give you 1.2 million. Another might say, I can give you two million. Of course, the Romans would choose the highest bidder, which would give the tax farmer all kinds of status with these occupiers and incentivize him to make more profit by taxing the people at a higher rate. Is that making sense? So this is how the tax collector made a living. He would get profit by taxing the people more than what he already paid the Roman government. He had the power to determine the value of the goods and how high the rate would be. He would collect his gift, as pro he would collect this profit from the network of collectors who worked under him. So you can see this was the kind of profession that attracted unpleasant personalities, to say the least. They were greedy, they were corrupt, and they were using their own people to advance personal wealth. And in fact, you say this was a form of institutional robbery. In fact, Jewish law in the Torah forbids such practice. It's called usury. So the rabbis at the time declared that the homes of tax collectors were unclean. Anyone who entered them became unclean, much like a brothel house. In fact, it was compared that way. If you were a respectable Jew, you would not even consider going into a house of a tax collector. They were lawbreakers, truthfully. They were lawbreakers, they were sinners, no better than common robbers, despicable even by biblical standards, and should be avoided and shunned by the normal good Jewish community. You can see this in the New Testament, or if you know any of the stories where Jesus was often accused of eating dinner with who? Prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors. They were all grouped together in one group. These were despised people because they were breaking the law. Zacchaeus lived in Jericho, a very busy city on a main thoroughfare between Galilee and Jerusalem. He would have been constantly visible, managing the many tax offices and toll stops. Most of Israel was poor, actually. Anyone passing through to make pilgrimage to the temple would have been taxed on whatever they brought with them or what they bought in Jerusalem and were taking back home. Zacchaeus was getting very rich indeed. And 
robbing the poor of what little they had. Terrible, wrong, shameful, not favorable with God. Everyone in Jericho, Jericho probably knew him and rightly despised him. So here we have this small little man, dishonest, unsavory, and morally unclean character, pushing ahead as usual. This is a different view of Zacchaeus. Pushing ahead, climbing a tree to get the best view possible. In some ways, he is doing what he has always done. He's getting ahead and making sure he gets what he wants. At the same time, we have Jesus passing through Jericho, making a trip from the Galilee to Jerusalem, presumably along with many of the other pilgrims. It was that time of year. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem to keep the feast. The city was crowded, and lots of people are walking with Jesus, and there's quite a commotion. He had just healed blind Bartimaeus as he approached the city. People were excited, curious, and some were truly praising God for the miracles that they were seeing Jesus do. Then Jesus does something very unexpected, surely unexpected for Zacchaeus, and then downright abhorrent to the crowd. Jesus stops in his tracks, he looks up into the tree where that man is hanging, and he addresses him by name. Zacchaeus! How did he know his name? And then he tells him to come down immediately. He says, come down now. And then he invites himself to Zacchaeus's unclean house. Whoa, where did that come from? It's like the boat was sailing along and then whoosh, a gust of wind takes everyone by surprise and goes in a very different direction than they expected. Jesus engages this man. He notices him and he calls him by name. And he says, I am coming over to your house today, right now. What kind of a God is this? What happens next is actually equally as astounding. Zacchaeus obeys Jesus exactly. He comes down quickly. That's what the scripture says, he came down immediately. And then he joyfully welcomes Jesus into his home. I'm shocked. It's surprise after surprise. Imagine Zacchaeus' surprise when this commotion-causing rabbi knows his name and then announces he's coming to his house, which everyone knows is a breaking of the rabbinic law. In fact, the reaction of the people is totally out of character with what just occurred between Jesus and Zacchaeus. The people are grumpy, they're disgusted, they have no vision, they're critical, and it's almost like they're just trying to take the wind right out of the sails. But the story isn't over. We are rewarded with another gust of wind. Zacchaeus himself does something very wind-like. He changes direction. <laughs> he stands up and he makes an announcement. He says, right now, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, and anyone I've cheated, I'm going to pay them back four times over. Whoosh! 
The boom of the mast of the boat just swung right over my head. Reversal. The sail boat just performed a huge tack. Can you feel that? Can you sense it? Can you hear it? Two sudden wind changes that move this boat in a different direction with a lot of momentum. Jesus took initiative and pursued a very unlikely man, even to the point of breaking rabbinic law and provoking disgust among the people. Even so, Zacchaeus responded with alacrity and ended up with a changed heart. Both events have tremendous power. Can you see that? Can you feel it? Tremendous power, life-changing power, reversals, changes. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, today, right now, salvation has come to this house. He says, this man is restored. He, too, is a son of Abraham. He is one of the included group of chosen people to bear my image and blessing. And then he says something about himself that explains why he just did what he did. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. Wow. Wow. What have we learned in this story about God? He searches for the lost. He's on the lookout. He notices a single person and calls them by name. He invites himself in. He does things suddenly. He says mind-boggling things. He restores identity. He changes desires. He tells us who he is. Zacchaeus was a Jew, an unfaithful Jew, but still a Jew and one of God's people. And Jesus pursued him. He saw him and invited him into a relationship, even in his unclean condition and in his unclean house. He was bringing back a lost Jew who really didn't deserve anything good. He was restoring him to his true calling, to be a light to the world, to care for the poor, to give and provide. This was very much a part of Israel's call and identity. He was to be an example of the generous heart of the God of Israel, to be an example of a pure heart. And did you know that the name Zacchaeus in Hebrew, Zachai, is how you say it, it means innocent, pure one? God was restoring Zacchaeus into his true identity. Also worth noting here is that Jesus was on his final trip to Jerusalem where he would give his life for the ransom and the redemption of many to pay for the sins of Zacchaeus and many others so that they could be called for eternity children of God. Can you feel this wind? Can you hear it? Can you feel the boat making sudden changes of direction? Can you feel the boat lift and surge forward? Friends, this is your God. You are his people. 
This is what he's doing. Let's look now to the Jeremiah passage. Jeremiah 31, or in your bulletin, turn back. It's full of things that God says that he will do that show us what he's like, what his character is like, and what his purpose is in engaging with us. I did a little exercise, and this is something you can do on your own when you read scripture. I went through and I made a list of all the verbs of what God was saying he's, going to, he's doing and he's going to do. So I'm gonna list them out for you, and you can see where they're in, in this section. He says, I love you. He says, I continue my faithfulness to you. He says, I build you. I bring you. I gather you. I lead you back. I cause you to walk. I watch over you. I keep you. I ransom you. I redeem you. I turn you. I comfort you. I give you. And I feast you. These are the motions of his wind, his spirit, and what he accomplishes. This beautiful poetic passage is God speaking to his people. This was given nearly 3,000 years ago to the Jewish people. This is the people that Jesus was referring to when he said in our Zacchaeus story, he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus is not outside the household of faith anymore. He has been made clean, he has been remade, he has been redeemed, and he's been restored to his true identity as a child of God. He's in God's house. And when you think about how this promise was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet nearly 3,000 years ago, and then we telescope back in 1,000 years later after these words were spoken, we telescope in to Jesus with that Zacchaeus. Do you see that Jesus is doing the very thing for Zacchaeus that God said he would do in the Jeremiah passage? He went after Zacchaeus. He sought for him. He saved the lost one. He changed his heart. He turns him. Wow. How incredible this God is. How truly faithful he is to his commitments. 1,000 years later, God appears through his son, Jesus Christ, and in him, and does exactly for one specific man in this story, even by name, exactly what he said he would do. This also applies now to us, both Jew and Gentile, as God's people. We are in his household of faith. And where we are unclean, where we are corrupt, where we are stuck, where we are not living in our true identity, he promises to pursue us, to keep getting closer, to relate to us, to engage us, call us by name, and invite himself in. And he changes our hearts through his pursuit of us. Notice the description in the Jeremiah passage of what will happen for God's people when God engages us. I found those verbs again. We shall be built. We shall adorn ourselves. We shall go forth. We shall plant. 
We shall enjoy. We shall return. We shall weep and pray. We shall not stumble. We shall sing aloud. We shall be radiant. We will not languish. We will rejoice and dance. We will be merry. We will be satisfied. And now, 2,000 years after Zacchaeus, 3,000 years after Jeremiah's prophecy, God is still pursuing and changing his people, us. He has called out our names, he has come into our unclean homes, and he's changed us. He is rebuilding us. We are returning. We are praying. We are planting. We are being filled. That is why we're here this morning. That's why you're here. This is happening to you. He wants to be close to us. He invites himself into our homes. He tells us, I'm coming. He wants to free us from the things in us that still entangle our hearts, that hurt and damage us. He wants to create so much change in us that we dance, we make merry, and we give half of what we are to those who don't have enough. He wants to satisfy us to overflowing, just like Zacchaeus. He is so good. He is so amazing. He does the work of change. He lifts our sails, and he moves our boat. So how do we respond to this message this morning? Well, if you notice in our Jeremiah passage, right smack in the middle, where it says, for thus says the Lord, um, there are some directives. They're few. They're much, much less than what God said he's doing and what he says will be the result of what he does. Starting in verse 7, there are five imperatives. The community of God's people is urged to engage together in praise. What are the five things that we're supposed to do in response to what God is doing and what's going to happen to us? We're to sing aloud with gladness. We're to raise shouts. We're to proclaim. We're to give praise. And there's something we are to say. And in our case, we do. We sing it. We're going to sing it later in our, um, our Eucharistic blessing. What do we say? Oh, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Save your people now. In Hebrew, it's Hoshiana. We say Hosanna. It's just a, the word got changed over the centuries. It's Hoshiana, Hosanna. And what you're saying when you sing and say that word is save us now. Save your people, your small people, those people who are left of the house of Israel. We don't feel like many. Those of us who are endeavoring to follow God, we are to cry out for more salvation, more rescuing, more change. In effect, what we're doing, we're crying out, God, come and change us. Hoshiana, save us now, right now, again. And we are urged to raise shouts of proclamation and celebration that he, God, is here to do just that. 
Folks, this is the gospel. This is what it is. This is the good news. This is the good news of the wind, of sailing instead of rowing. God himself is the wind, the only true wind. Get your sail up. Pull it tight. Feel the wind in your sail. Listen to the wind blow. Be moved by God himself. Sing aloud. Raise shouts. Proclaim his goodness. Give him praise and say, Hoshiana, God, keep on changing us now. Amen.